hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chits, <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode 355 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year young adult cancer survivor broadcasting right now from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. My fabulous co-host Kenny Kane is currently on the road at Warp Tour, entertaining lots of teenagers with the regalings of what all that is stupid cancer. He will be joining us next Monday. But you can never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast right now on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It's not okay. That's 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world. One chemo infusion at a time. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Joe Abdo, a uh, young adult survivor currently product manager and scientist I met this guy's really smart at Oncoplex DX which is a um, a, uh, a a cancer product medication You'll find all about amazing stuff he's a cancer survivor working in oncology at a pharmaceutical company making medicine it's amazing stuff and joining us in studio pretty face right to my left here the one and only Melinda Hood and uh, with that let's kick off our show hello Hello, Noel. Good evening. Mallory. Hello. And Sean. Hello. Thank you for the quick turnaround. Turn, I'm turning the mic. Turning your mic on? Yeah. <clears throat> What's going on? Not I much. Feel, it's a quiet... It, this is the calm before the storm. It happens every summer. And I know we're working our, our asses off to kind of get things in order for our board meeting coming up on our summer retreat. But we're not in the throes. It's like a time where we all have to step back. Take a breath and realize we're not planning a conference. Speak for yourself. Yeah, speak for yourself, Matt. <laughs> An international conference 10 months from now? 
We've had some stuff go on, some big stuff. I guess so. I mean, I know the steering committee. We'll talk about the steering committee. And there's like, I would say there's just smaller things by comparison, if you would, happening behind the scenes. It's not 24-7, but there are some things happening for sure. Okay. Anything you can announce? Well, we are opening our call for speakers. Oh. Yes. What does that mean? Uh, so if you are interested in presenting or and or speaking at CancerCon, you can submit your ideas uh, to us for review, and we can take a look at it and see if you want to speak at CancerCon. And uh, that website for you listening out there is cancercon.org slash call for speakers. Yes, please submit all of your wonderful ideas. No, because we get so many people who write us probably the week before the event. Yeah. Hey, I'd love to talk at your conference in Denver next week. Yeah. It, it doesn't work like that. No, it, it doesn't work. It takes a lot that. of time, yes. a lot of review, exactly. and uh, a lot of people helping us out to see what's going to be best for no, everyone. And now we know the show has at least three listeners. So, hey. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, if you're listening, three people, uh, and you want to speak or present at CancerCon, uh, submit your abstract for review um, happening, I think, next month, right? The next couple of weeks we'll be reviewing yes. abstracts. Uh, we're, we're open until the mid-August, uh, and then we'll start reviewing. Got it. Sean, what you up to? No skiing, right? It's the summer? I was moshing at the uh, Warp Tour in That's Camden, right. New Jersey. I heard about that. It was a lot of so fun. So tell us about Warp Tour from your perspective. You, you were telling me before that you went when you were a kid, Yeah. and I, now you feel old. I relived my 14-year-old self uh, going to Warp Tour, listening to <coughs> Taking Back Sunday and the such. So it was interesting. Going Is that a band back. I should know about or not know <laughs> no, about? No, you Come should on, not man. know no, about no. that. <laughs> You're just really showing your age now. I heard a rumor Simple Plan was there. <laughs> just a no. rumor. <laughs> no. Uh, it, Kenny played it in his own head. He wished they were there. So, But uh, no, it was really cool seeing it from the, uh, the other side of things being older um but we had our stupid cancer 10 up there it was awesome were you there the day you were next to trojan or was that the day before that was the day after okay yeah that's so, good product placement little, next to the trojan tent little s- stupid sexy time it's good stuff um no so, but it was good we there was a lot of uh you know people of all different ages coming up to the tent sharing their cancer stories and all that and um raised a lot of money there which was really exciting a lot of people were really interested in supporting the cause so they're buying wristbands. What do you? What? Do, what actually happens at the tent at Warp Tour? We a lot of people come up and they're like, "Oh, what's stupid cancer? Or what are you guys here for?" They they wanted to learn about what we do, and um, they'd also share their own personal stories. Like I I'm a survivor, or my mom, you know, um, just beat cancer, or and you know, in some unfortunate cases, you know, they lost some somebody. Um, so it's really cool, and um, definitely got the word out there. A lot more people know about us now, so it was really great. Did you get to make the rounds and see what other groups were had a tent? Yeah, um, there was a good mix of you know like the the big companies, brands um, showcasing their products and all that kind of stuff. A lot of record labels, band tents, and all that. But there were a number of nonprofits. Um, one particular that was particularly um, popular was. Um, one that is raising money to support art programs at schools. And so they did cool painting stuff there. Um, but we definitely were one of the most popular nonprofits there for sure. Hopefully. I would hope so. So what was the average age? Kenny said last year it was like kid, like teen, like 15, 14. Is that still around the, the right age group? Yeah. I mean, it, there, there's definitely a lot of high schoolers. I'd say some college students as well. Um, but it's really funny. Parents get in for free. 
Um, and they actually have like a daddy daycare. <laughs> kind of go, really? Yeah. For, <laughs> for daddies. Have all the alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty funny to see that, like the parents with their kids dropping them off. Um, so it was really cool. Noel, have you been to Warp Tour? I, I haven't. I'm kind of bummed that I've been missing out my whole life. Your whole life. You're missing out, man. I've never been when I was when I was a target age. But I was never in the whole like punk, I guess. I don't even know what kind of music punk rock. Teenage I, music is what it is. Yeah. True I, I would teenage imagine, angsty. Like, angsty, angry. E- emo, yeah. Emo? Is, yeah. That, yeah. A, is that a thing? That's sure, a for thing. emotional Still? teenage yeah. angst. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sounds about right. So no, I haven't been ever. Okay. No, I mean, I I didn't really go to any concerts. Like uh, Back then, like Lilith Fair was just taking off when I was in high school. Lady um, Rock, Lady Rock, and and um, Lollapalooza kind of kicked off when I started college, like the early '90s. So, uh, but they were early. Oh, I remember in college they had they started um, Woodstock, did it its thing again uh, in the '90s. '96, right? Yep. Yeah, <clears throat> they they hosted it again. It was all muddy and disgusting, but less I heard less uh, less pot and alcohol, so probably not as fun. I would imagine. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. I would have a hard time believing that there was less <laughs> pot and alcohol, actually. Yeah. Yeah. In 96 and 69. In 96. Yeah. I would imagine there'd be just as much just, yeah. and maybe just some other things. Well, my friend diminished. who went didn't smoke, so he probably just came back and gave me the, uh, the, the clean version, version. The abridged version of what was going on. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, anyway, um, we uh, you know the show is taped, but we are amidst the throes of season two of Chasing Life. Yes. And uh, the second episode drops right after we finish this this taping. Uh, we hope you're watching. Lots of exciting things going on. And, and Italia just uh, let me know that they'll be shooting the uh, the finale in Italy. Ooh. As a little teaser to stay tuned and glue yourself to your DVR. Uh, and a reminder that, uh, that all of season one is on Netflix. That is how I watch it. I just <clears throat> watched the entire first mm-hmm. season on Netflix. Yes, yeah, so... Chasing Life is on Netflix, um, which was it like? I didn't realize this. Like you pay one fee and all the things are free. Because yeah. I'm used to Apple TV where you pay like piecemeal for things. Yeah, no Netflix. It's like I'm a ten late, dollars a month. Yeah, it's like late, ten bucks a month. You can stream. No, I'm at all, you I'm want. late to the game on Netflix. Netflix totally is life saving. It's amazing. Yeah. I really like it. Really good stuff. And finally, before we kick off the show here, um, some some viral news going around. Um, there was a uh, Mal, you read the article. Uh, some oncologist had misdiagnosed his patients on purpose to cash in on things and some of them died and he got convicted and he's going to jail for 45 years. Yeah, he's going to jail for 45 years for being an awful human being. Um, First and foremost. Yeah, and giving people chemo treatments who were healthy. Uh, There are some interesting responses on the page to uh, this gentleman. Um he is going to jail for 45 years. Is so. that an, oh, he'll, he'll, And he's like in his 40s, right? Or 50s? Yeah, he's in his 40s or 50s. They say he's expected to serve at least 34 years of the sentence. Um, but he was he had to sit and listen to all the testimony of the people who he had either harmed or um, the family members of those who had passed away because he was treating them and they didn't need to be treated. Uh, he did issue an apology. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I think at that point, a little too late. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with uh, thanks and no thanks. Yes. So never hurts to get a second opinion. Ugh, weird. 
Yes. What is wrong with people? That's a rhetorical question these days. People are just insane. Yes, people are just insane. Anyway, let's kick off the show here live right next to me to my uh, staring in the eyes. It's always nice to have in studio guests. Melinda Hood, returning champion to the Stupid Cancer Show. Young adult survivor of uterine cancer, Vermont native. I guess we'll talk about the, the teddy bear company in Ben and Jerry's. I work there. Uh, and uh, Cabot Cheese. You work there too? No. Just okay. the teddy bear. <laughs> yeah. Um, she uh, moved to New York 14 years ago, worked as a visual researcher and archive director for Stock Footage Library. Uh, we've got, I think I told you this, we got sued by Getty once for using. Yeah, yeah I'm reaching yeah, That's that. our other story. Uh, she can, her work is, can be seen at Sundance and Chicago 10, Emmy nominated documentaries, and uh, she's an active member, probably one of the first legacy <laughs> people who doesn't leave uh, the, <laughs> the stupid cancer ecosystem here in New York City. Four time New York City half marathon runner for Team Stupid Cancer. She's been on the uh, CancerCon steering committee. All around incredible human being. Please welcome to the show the one and only Melinda Hood. Welcome back. Nice to be here. How you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm coming off the high of um, I got to go to the ticker tape parade. Oh, the on, soccer girls, yeah, right? for yeah. the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. That was amazing. It was great. It was it was so good. It was um, my friend and I were like leading cheers as. Where the, were you stationed on Broadway? We were on Broadway, right between um, Wall Street and Pine. Oh, right there. Yeah, we were. I got there. That's the real canyon. Yeah, we I got there really early, and so uh, to stake out a spot like right up against the uh, the barricade where they were blocking off traffic, and it was it was great, and it was so nice. We were it just the crowd was so awesome and so supportive, and I was jokingly talking to a police officer that was standing there. I was like, "So we're a lot better than a than a bunch of um, drunken Giants fans, right?" <laughs> and he just kind of smiled and was like, uh, "No comment, but yeah, a little bit." Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, I'm excited to have you back on the show, um, you know, to talk about your story. But I think your your story is even more interesting now because it's been a while since you were on the show. And since that time, you've taken a very active role in Stupid Cancer. You've seen us grow from what was then the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. You've yes. been on the steering committee. You've watched CancerCon blossom from the OMG Summit. So before we get back to your story, because I do want the listeners to hear your story, uh, Talk about what it's been like for you to be part of something where you've actually seen real results become what we have to look at today. It to me, it is just it is so amazing and it is so rewarding because, like I always tell people, because people are like, "Wow, they're like you do a lot for stupid cancer and you volunteer a lot," and for me, it's like my therapy. It's like it's it's I get so much out of. Um, volunteering for the organization and all the stuff that the uh that stupid cancer does so it's it's so amazing because i remember volunteering for my first conference i think it was like 2011 the year of the infamous cruise which was amazing oh the typhoon cruise yes yes the typhoon cruise which was amazing (laughs) and that was the first conference that i had volunteered for and then just going um just going to vegas and being a participant there and then being on the steering committee and, and actually um being one of the speakers at OMG and then running events at OMG has just been just so amazing. I mean, you are practically, you are not even practically, you are family <laughs> at this point now. Uh, you're like, you know, almost like furniture. We just expect you're <laughs> going to be there. We're always reliable. We know you're going to do a great job. And uh, you you have, you were on the original, uh, not the original, you were on the 2013 steering committee. 
Is that correct? Yes. For cancer, for OMG. Yes, for OMG. And now cancer comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the second year that OMG was in Vegas. Right, because 2012 was a big mess that we don't talk about. <laughs> I had a great time as an attendee that year. That's though. the whole point. I had My, a great time. <laughs> that's the best part of producing our conferences. Like, no one knows how horrible things went on the <laughs> behind the scenes and the, the crazy immediate triage we have to conduct here and there. Hmm. 2012 was the year of the, the marriage proposal. Yes, Swifty. That just Aww. showed up like five minutes before closing ceremonies that no one knows about. I know. I remember um, Thea, who <clears throat> uh, does PR for Stupid Cancer, she was like, she was telling, she's like, guys, get your cameras ready. Get your cameras ready. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. Yes. That was, yeah, insane. And uh, are you you are still on the committee or you stepped off the committee? I have uh, stepped off the committee when you uh, sign up. And get selected to be on the steering committee. It is an initial three-year commitment. So I just finished my third year. And so um, it's a lot of work. So I'm I, I'm taking a step back for now. <laughs> As I told Allie, who uh, I was like, this this isn't forever. Goodbye. Right, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just like, I need a break, though. <laughs> well, no, what's, it's like Degrassi High, the next generation, right? So you're entrusting everything you've helped to build to a whole new class of freshmen coming in. Yeah, and I've seen the way that people that we've brought on to the steering committee over the past few years, you know, watching them grow and learn and and bring their unique perspective right. to what we do, which is just it's 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 so collaborative and it's great. Yeah. So for what it's worth on the record here to millions of potential my well my dad listens, so <laughs> to the four people listening to the show, thank you for all you've done. It's been amazing. You're like my my cousin at this point, you know, <laughs> my, my my stepsister or something. Um, but let's get to your story. Uh, uterine cancer, you know, we, all cancer is like old person cancer in a sense. But uterine just sounds like old lady cancer. Yeah, it y- uterine cancer pretty much is old lady cancer. It's uh, it's a cancer that it's it's most commonly diagnosed in women in their fifties and sixties. Right, and kind of one of the like I don't know like amusing kind of like antidote stories that I tell people is there was a time I was waiting in my oncologist's office and I was just, you know, 27 sitting there, iPod flipping through magazines <laughs> or whatever. And this woman, she like puts her hand on my knee. She's like, Oh sweetie, it's so nice that you're here with your mom. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, I just kind of smile. And then, you know, my cover gets blown when they call my name and I have right, to go right. up and like, go into the doctor's office. Your cover gets blown. Yeah. That's awesome. I had something similar in, in that I was 21 in a pediatric ward. Hmm. So there were a lot of children that were sick who were, you know, with it like birth to three to four years old. And their parents were in their early 20s like I was. So they were like, oh, what what does, what does cancer does your kid have? I was like, and I'm the kid. <laughs> <laughs> so uterine cancer, that is one of those like undetectable, unpreventable kind of things. It, it's, it's one of the ones I remember I went in like I was having just, like one of the main symptoms of uterine cancer is extremely heavy periods. And I was having a point where like I couldn't function. It was that bad. So I went to my, uh, so I just, you know, went to my gynecologist's office and they, and the first thing that she said to me, she's like, you know, they did the basic test and she's like, oh, you know, you're young, you're healthy. I'm not worried. Don't you be worried. Right. And then it was two weeks later, I was told you have cancer. So what happened in those two weeks that you got someone else to say that? 
No, well, what had happened was they um, they put me on some medication that they thought would help regulate it, so I'd just be able to like function a little bit more. And n- no, it was it was still horrible. So I called I called back the um, the gynecologist's office, and my gynecologist was on vacation. So they put me in touch with the gynecologist who was covering mine, and um, they. Um, well, maybe it was more than two weeks. It was probably a little bit longer than that because I had some other diagnostic test too. Um, but so the um, this other gynecologist brought me in and did like just a basic exam. And I was like, um, since this is so bad, we're going to schedule you for a DNC. Which means what? Um, it's like something in cutilage. But basically what it is, sorry if this is like kind of um, gruesome, but they basically go in and they scrape out the lining of your uterus. Okay. And it's like, it sounds really horrible. It's not, it's like a 45 minute procedure, but like you go under and you just kind of, like, you're kind of sore for the next couple of days. Right. And when they do that, they take whatever they take out and they send it to pathology. And that was when they found out that it was cancer. And it was, it was a really, really bad phone call because my doctor called me while I was at work. And always a good time. Always a good time, yeah. And so my doctor calls me at work and I was like, yeah, we need you, um, I need you to come in tomorrow to discuss your uh, your test results. We think you have cancer. Right. So I get that over the phone while I'm at work. Amongst your colleagues who have no idea what's happening. Yeah, amongst yeah. my colleagues who have like no idea what's happening. So like I like take my, I work for a very small office. There are like f- four or five of us. Right. And I just remember, like, I, like, went into my boss's office and I closed the door. I'm like, uh, I need to talk to you. Ah. Um, I need tomorrow afternoon off. <laughs> right. Because I got to go to the doctor. So it was right. just, and then I remember, like, afterward, just, like, because, you know, they sit you down in the office and they tell you all this stuff. And, like, oh, yeah, we have to take out your uterus. So, right. yeah. That. So, yeah, that. <laughs> and so I remember going home and. You're 27. Yeah, I was 27. And I remember going home. And Were you I'm, living on your own at the time? No, I was living with my boyfriend at the time. Okay. And um like I just remember like I was just in shock. And of I didn't know what to do. And I knew that I needed to tell my parents. And I I'm just like, I don't know how to do this. So I I text my sister. Okay. I text my twin sister and I was like, um, can you call me back? It's kind of an emergency. Because <laughs> I knew she was at work. And right. so she calls me and she's like, what's, what's the matter? Are you okay? I'm like, well, um, kind of. Right. Um, and that's when I just like, I'm like, I don't know how to say this. I'm like, I have cancer. Right. And she's like, um, I'm at work right now, but I'm about to leave work. So I'll call you back in like five minutes. Yeah. Right. So she called me, like she called me back and like, I went to like the whole thing with her and then like she went directly to my parents and my mom knew something was up. When right. she walked in the door and my sister was there, because she's like, shouldn't you be at work? Right. So it was like my my sister told my older sister, and then they both told my parents, and then my parents called me, and it was just- Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then later that night, my friend came over with vodka. So- Yes. <laughs> like you do. So obviously, young adult cancer, we've been saying this for years. It's, you know, we don't try to pit anyone against anyone else by age- but it's certainly very different when you're not 80 and when your uterus is at stake, that means babies. Yeah. Like there, and there were things that my doctor never told me cause I don't think he ever had a patient that was as young as me before. Right. So he didn't tell me that I would go through menopause. Right. 
And I just, cause I'm, I'm a researcher. So like one of the first things I did when I got diagnosed was I went to the library and like, you know, people in their What's 20s. a library? <laughs> it's a place that has books, books with these paper things. Ah, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, so it, like, you know, people in their twenties, they don't really know what menopause is. They just like see these commercials for stuff on TV yeah. and that's about it. And so, yeah. And the, the no kids thing is hard in your 20s. It's hard. But then as like I'm at the age now where um, like my friends are starting to have kids. And in fact, my older sister had a baby last summer. And like I told her, I was like, I was like, you know, I love you and I'm so, so happy for you. But I can't come to your baby shower. Right. I'm like that. I'm. I'm like I, I I can't do it. I'm really sorry. And again, this goes back to, you know, women in their reproductive years getting cancer that immediately, not just like might, but immediately jeopardizes their ability to either have a child or carry a child or both. Yeah, that's very serious. Yeah, and my my oncologist never talked to me about. Um, like fertility treatments, preservation, anything like that. And so in my surgery, they also, um, because they were having a very hard time telling how far it had spread, if it had spread to other areas. So when they took out my uterus, they also took out both of my ovaries. Wow. Without consent or they no, just... No, 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 no. They told me, um, they told me beforehand that that was the plan. Okay. Because they just like, you know, we don't, um, we're having a very hard time right now telling if it has spread to those areas. And so we need to... Um, basically what he told me is like, well, without a uterus, it's not like you're going to be using them anyway. That's, that's basically what he told me. And that's a little insensitive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, like, um, what I talk about a lot with my doctor about that doctor is he was like, in terms of like surgical skills and things like that, the man is brilliant. Right. When it comes to being a people person, not at all. That whole bedside manner. Yeah. It just didn't exist. Because technology, how many years ago was this? This was, it will actually be um, seven years ago in two weeks that I was diagnosed. Wow. Wow. Seven years. Yeah. There's actually technology now that they're starting to pioneer um, at Northwestern where if, and again, the the barrier to this succeeding is the doctor being aware of it. Mm -hmm. But if, let's presume the doctor is aware of it, they can scrape out ovarian tissue and freeze it for as long as it needs to be frozen. And then, this is creepy, they implant the ovary in your armpit and it grows back and then they harvest follicles from it with inside your armpit and make embryos. Wow. wow. Yes. Because yeah. well, like the other thing that I've heard is there, it's like in Sweden, or something like this, they're actually at the point now where they've done their first um, uterine transplant. Yes. A woman, and um, so a woman got a, a uterus transplanted into her. From another woman. From another woman, yeah. and then um, conceived a child and was actually able to bring that child to term. There was actually a story in uh, either U.S. News or NPR a couple of weeks ago about a woman who was diagnosed with cancer when she was 13. Mal, you know the story? She was 13, they took out her ovary and they froze it, and she just had a baby with the thought ovary that was inside her like 15 years later. 
There's wow. only been 10 hmm. babies born in the last five years resulting from that new procedure. But she had this done experimental like a 15 years ago. Yeah. But this this concept of regardless of where your cancer is or what's going to happen, just scrape some tissue before anything starts and freeze it as your backup plan. Hmm. Right. That's the direction that things are going. And, you know, like it's all the stuff we wish we had when we were told. Blah, yeah. Blah, you and know. like part of that comes down too is there's a whole thing with um, like these things being um, experimental. Yes. And your insurance doesn't pay for any of that. That's the other barrier too because yeah. we could solve the problem of the technology. We could potentially solve the problem of the the the, the literacy of the doctor or the gynonc or the rad tech to know, by the way, we should do this for you. But the cost. Yeah, because especially like my problem, you know, I was, you know, in my... Um, you weren't a, you weren't the monopoly man when diagnosed. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I was the monopoly man. I had um, I had a you know like an okay job that paid you know paid. I was living comfortably. I had some savings, right? But then I had a primary care physician and two different surgeons, and so that would I would schedule my doctor's appointments. So I would just have like one day of doctor's appointments, right? And right there, that's one hundred and twenty five dollars in copay mm-hmm. from seeing the three different doctors. So yeah. that like your savings is gone. It's like ten minutes at Whole Foods. Yes, it's <laughs> <laughs> which I I understand is how called whole paycheck. Yeah, whole yes, paycheck. Whole yeah, paycheck. Exactly. They're actually um they're, they're trying to make a half paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I a, saw the other store, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to make a half paycheck. I have one that's like just a like a less expensive version of Whole Foods, apparently. The Trader Joe's of Whole Foods. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So seven years later, you you you're you're clearly giving back to the next you. You're trying to make it suck a little less. Yeah. But in terms of the the technology and the you know we we always say that it ain't over when it's over and that cancer is a a, a lifestyle mm-hmm. and it never really leaves your you know mind but it can leave your body and in the wake of a reproductive challenge where are you are you able to talk about you know your 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 thoughts and ideas because we have lots of mutual friends yeah that have taken different courses in the sense of what they can get done. Yeah, um, because I, um, because at the time of my diagnosis, I wasn't presented with like ovary preservation or anything right. like that. I'm at the point where my only option is adoption or surrogacy. I, I didn't think you could do surrogacy if you didn't have. Eggs. You get a donor egg. Oh, okay. And then, you know, sperm from presumably a guy that matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, then you find a, a surrogate host. Yeah. So there, it just it, like I've thought about those things. I just, right. I, I. Thing is that it, 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 it sometimes uncomfortably forces the situation that you don't need or want to think about at the time too. Yeah, and like it's hard too because the way that I explained this was there's there's a very strong emotional element, of course, to it. Like I. How I equated it with um, with the with the person I was having this discussion with was I like I had a job interview at this job that would have been awesome and I was like ninety five percent sure that I was going to get this job and then I didn't and I was devastated and like I found out that I didn't get this job when I was on vacation in Disney World so I'm you know I'm in you know the the most magical place on earth and I'm crawled up in a ball. In my hotel room crying. Right. Because I didn't get this job that I really, really wanted. And 
the way that I equate it is like, that's how I reacted to a job. Yeah. Imagine if it was a child. Yes. And yeah. and like I know people like in terms of adoption, like I know people who've gone through like hell and high water, um, like having a child in their home and then, you know, for a couple of years and then having it to the point where that child might get taken away. Right. Because like the birth parents all of a sudden pop back up or something like that. Mm-hmm. And not that, you know, birth parents don't have rights or anything like that, but just I to be a emo- you know, to be so emotionally involved right. and then have that get taken away would just be just devastating. But again, in context, this is a conversation that you shouldn't even be having. Yeah. Right. So in with perspective to why we exist and why we do what we do every day, this is I would consider it almost like a civil liberty. Yeah, because and there was someone else in our our stupid cancer community, as I call my stupid cancer family yes. that I was talking to about the whole, like not having a uterus thing and being at that age where like, it seems, you know, your Facebook feed is just like babies dog- and babies and babies and dogs yeah. and cats. Yeah. And cats, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that it's, it's just socially hard. Mm-hmm. And I know like going back to what, like other uh, conversation I was talking about that I had with my sister about how like, I love you and I'm so happy for you, but I, I, I can't come to your baby shower. Right. Um, she had, she sends out um, like it, there's a group text that's like me and my twin sister and my mom and um, her mother-in-law of like pictures of, of my beautiful niece, Kenzie. Right. And my older sister actually asked my mom, like, you know, does it, does it bother her that I'm sending these pictures? Right. And I was like, no, I'm like, I'm so happy for you. And, you know, I have this gorgeous niece who turns one in a couple of weeks and mm-hmm. I can't wait to go spend her first birthday with her. Right. But it's just the whole idea of like going to the baby shower. Right. No, this is this is the this is who we are. Yeah. This is our story. And I've had that same um, conversation with a couple of my friends as well. And they're just so understanding. Well, we're out of time, but you're staying on for the second segment, and we can talk to you after the after the show. I do want you yeah. back because we could talk for hours. <laughs> no, it's such it's such an extraordinary, you know, it, it's it's sad that it's not unique, but mm. there is a massive component that you're making unique for yourself. So, uh, Melinda Hood, uh, thanks for joining us. She's going to stick around, and then uh, we're going to get to the news right now. Okay, you ready, Mel? Yes. And now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you to missing out. Uh, we've got events coming up in Des Moines, San Francisco, Rochester, and Clifton, New Jersey. And if you'd like to learn more about hosting your own Stupid Cancer Meetup, visit stupidcancer.org slash meetup. Cancer is lonely. We have a cure for that, and it's called Instapeer, our brand new mobile app for iOS and Android, which provides anonymous one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by cancer. Again, available now for download right now, this moment, instantly. iOS and Google Play, Instapeer. It's what's for dinner. No, that's the wrong tagline. (laughs) We've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have time to post on our social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed. Cancer is expensive. We are proud to announce cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. 
you did not ask to get sick and your community wants to help. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer gear. Visit StupidCancerStore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got awesome skateboards and don't forget about Flip, the Cancer Bird, our latest plushy mascot. That's StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud, wear stupid cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. In our main segment on the show here, Joe Abdo survived two uh, I'm gonna parietal astrocytomas in 1996 as a freshman in high school. Not that there's a, a good time for that to happen. His battle inspired him to join the fight against cancer as a career. He attended Georgetown for grad school uh, to understand the biological mechanisms of cancer, which means he's a smart science guy. And uh, he's been working in the oncology space for almost eight years now. Lives in Bethesda with his wife, Catherine, and two children, Millie and Wynn. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Joe Abdo. Hello, Joe. Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. And you're going to get applause now. <laughs> that was the lamest applause ever. Anyway. Oh, it's the story of my life. Yeah. How you doing? I was so nice to meet you in Chicago to put a face to the name. I'm, I'm really, uh, your story is incredible. And I think I, I'm really excited to talk to you, not just about your journey, but specifically, you know, you work in the field that a people hate, people resent, people think are hiding cures, people are disdained for. And yet there's so much progress and you are such an emphatic supporter of everything you stand for. And, and all that said, again, thank you for, for, a, your bravery to come on the show here, but at the same time, you know, leveraging everything you've been through to channel that for the next, the next you, in a sense. Sure. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. First and foremost, thank you so much for thinking of me to be on the show. This is an incredible honor. Thank you, Mallory, for helping me set this up. And um, I have to say, I was preparing for this uh, for the last couple of days. I was, uh, you know, went to the archives of the Stupid Cancer podcast um, t- uh, show and uh you know listen to a couple episodes and i have to say matt your your voice was made for the radio it's it sounds like honey over a distant thunder that bear i would pay money to listen to you read the phone book seriously so you found the right calling for sure Uh, i'm not not quite sure how to respond (laughs) i'm i maybe you you, the only way to yeah the only way to follow it up is with this <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what that's what I hear. That's all I hear when I was listening to your show, man. So first and foremost, uh, congrats on having such a great uh, show, and thank you for having me on. And um, it was first, it was so great to meet you in Chicago. Uh, we had a phenomenal talk. First, like, how crazy was it that we discovered in our conversation that a we have the exact same birthday, b we're both um, you know eight, nine, you're a 19 year survivor, I'm an 18 year survivor of brain cancer, and uh, and and here we are talking on the phone in a podcast. It's amazing. Uh, where, where are you calling in from again? I'm actually uh, in. Uh, I'm actually sitting in my office in Rockville, Maryland, right now. But uh, I live just right outside of Washington D.C. I'm just you know a couple miles outside of the D.C. border in Bethesda. Got it. So yep. I so your your story started when you were in high school with some seizures. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I was actually uh, specifically in eighth grade. 
And uh, it, was, it was very strange, and it was probably my fault for not sounding the sirens and things like that were happening, but I was having seizures every day for about a year. And whenever I tell people that, they're always like, uh, <laughs> why didn't you tell someone after the very first seizure that you had? But I had no idea. I, mean, I was a stupid 15-year-old. I had no idea what was going on with my body. I, I had grown like six inches in like a couple months, so I just had like this huge growth spurt. I thought it maybe had something to do with that. So I had a seizure every single day for a year, and sometimes during football practice, sometimes when I'd be in class, sometimes when I'd be sitting at home at dinner and nobody noticed because I would just kind of lose time for a minute or kind of black out. And especially if I was in class, you know, no, uh, you know, the teacher would just be talking and I would black out and then come back to him and be like, oh, whoa, that was weird, what just happened? Um, and so one day over Christmas break, I was uh, my older brother was home um, and we were downstairs in the basement playing uh, John Madden football and it was time for me to uh, pick my play and uh you know i think actually probably thankfully i had a seizure at the moment and my older brother was like dude come on pick the play pick the play what's going on and uh and and i just sat there you know with my mouth open just staring at the tv screen and he was like whoa what's going on and actually his roommate who was from the bahamas was downstairs with us and he ran over and grabbed my face and was holding my jaw so I didn't like bite my tongue off because he could kind of tell some of the signs that I was having a seizure. Right. And they they both ran right upstairs, told my mom. Uh, I think it was like literally a day later, I was sitting in an MRI machine, and then and like an hour after that, they had um, called my dad over to the hospital, and then they told me the news and showed me the scary-looking spider-like structure that was growing on the right side of my head, and the rest is history. I remember when I was diagnosed, I had been symptomatic for six months and mm -hmm. and no one had taken me seriously, let alone myself. But as soon as I had that first MRI and they found something in my brain, I was so relieved that there was actually something causing all of this and it wasn't like aliens prodding me at night. Did you have any sort of reconciliation around that that moment at such a young age that this was no, actually uh, the complete opposite actually but that's probably because i was a self-centered you know teenager um i was just uh i think the way that you described it in other podcasts that you call it the o s h i t window was probably more appropriate for how i was feeling at the time is that is that how is that the ter the term that you coined did i say that properly yeah the os uh, osw the oh shit window yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't swear just in case my mom's listening, but yeah, oh, okay. S H I T. <laughs> sorry, mom. I'm sorry. We'll try to keep the show clean from now on. God damn it. Yeah, Mrs. Abdo is a saint, okay? Okay. So I, I will refuse to, to swear in front of her, but no, just, uh, to, but to be, you know, I, I honestly, I wish I could commiserate with that notion that that you were, you know, somewhat relieved when you heard the news of, you know, actually found what was causing all this weird stuff going on. But I probably would have preferred them to be like, oh, it's just growing pains. You'll be fine. Right, exactly. Uh, but no, it was, uh, I was, yeah, um, and I, you know, I'm sure this has been talked about a million times on your show before, but, you know, for, for people that are listening that haven't been sitting in, in the chair where they hear news like this, it's, uh, I feel like the show Breaking Bad, portrayed it absolutely brilliantly where it's like the minute the the doctor says you have cancer everyone that was sitting in the room's face just like blurs yep the the noise uh you know kind of like zeroes out and you're just kind of sitting in a tunnel you know alone 
and it's and it's honestly like uh, I, I don't think I've ever had that feeling since that, that, that for those five minutes that I was sitting in my neurologist's office. Um, and it, yeah, it was just uh, and and Breaking Bad when they showed that, and I watched it for the first time, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have have seen that show because it was so popular. They nailed it. They absolutely nailed the feeling that I had, even as a 15-year-old. It was just immediately that I heard the word cancer. Everyone that was sitting in the room disappeared. All the noise that was occurring in the room went away, and I was just like sitting in purgatory with my own like crazy thoughts, just you know, assuming the worst. I actually, at the time, didn't even really know what cancer was. Um, like I said, it was just kind of a you know teenager that was really into you know video games, Adam Sandler movies, and kind of chasing girls. I guess I went to Catholic school, so we didn't really chase girls. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, so I was like, I, if they would have told me, if I would have been like, yeah, what's cancer? And they would have said, oh, it's like little green monsters that attack the inside of your body. I would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, that, I believe you. I had no idea it was just uh, cells that forgot to stop growing. I had, I, mean, I had no idea that's what it was. And so immediately I was just, you know, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lose my hair and this is uh, probably going to die in a couple days or a couple weeks or a couple months. And, and so... Um, my start of the journey, I was honest, it was like ground zero. I had no idea what was going on. What happens to a 15 year old with, with astrocytoma? Was there surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, anything? Yeah, actually, well, um, I think the typical, uh, regimen is probably all three. And, um, and, and my story is, you know, I've, I have a ton of luck. I had an incredible team of doctors and I was able to get through, um, both both uh, situations with just surgery. Um, at the time, radiation was a no-brainer, uh, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, you know, my oncologist and uh, radiation therapist were, you know, knocking on my door every day like, hey, you ready to start today? You ready to start today? And my neurosurgeon, um, who's a world-renowned neurosurgeon um, in the Minneapolis area, uh, just said, just, you know, leave us alone, leave us alone. We're just, we're going to do surgery and then just chill for a minute and see what happens. And, um, so after the first surgery, they, they took out the tumor and, um, the doctor, uh, was very confident that the histology was not very aggressive and was just like, yeah, I think we're good now. Um, and this was in February, uh, when I was in, eight, uh, actually in eighth grade. And, um, and so that was it. I went home, you know, recovered from my surgery and went back to school, started playing basketball again. Uh, and I think um, my team and myself and my family may, maybe got a little too comfortable and thought that it was way behind us. And so we didn't schedule my follow-up MRI for like six months. Uh, the seizures came back, and I reported that to some of my doctors, and they were like, oh, they're probably just phantom seizures. Your brain probably still thinks that. that phantom that's seizures? That's gross. like a band name. Yeah, that, was, that, that is actually when you and I start our band. Let's let's name it that, Matt. The Phantom Seizures. <laughs> Got it. What's that? Joe Abdo and the Phantom Seizures. Yeah, I like that. It's got a good ring. But uh, so uh, so the people were just like, no, nah, it's all good. Like, we don't need to give you an MRI. Let's just wait till the six month uh, checkup. And so then I went for my six month checkup. I was just about to start my freshman year of military high school, and um, and I went in. Got the MRI. Was sitting in uh, my oncologist's office, laughing with my little brother, and my mom. We had no, there was no chance in hell 
that we were going to be receiving bad news. We were 100% sure that it was behind us. And the doctor came in, and I knew the minute I saw his face and that it had grown back. And unfortunately, it had even grown back a little bit bigger than the first tumor. And so um, they had to be a little bit more aggressive. I don't know what that entails because I'm not a physician, but uh, the, the surgeon, the neurosurgeon said that during the second uh, craniotomy, that they had to be a little bit more aggressive um, in getting out. So they probably took out, you know, my brain matter, and that's why I'm not too good at math these days. <laughs> but uh, but um, so and that was it. And then the net, right after the surgery, you know, uh, radiation oncologists and, and uh, medical oncologists were knocking on my door like, you're ready to start chemo, you're ready to start radiation, we got to do this. Like, it's, it's, it's textbook, it's standard of care, let's go. And so I was like, yeah, whatever, whatever. And then my neurosurgeon would come in and then I would say, yeah, I'm about to start radiation therapy. And you go, hold on a second. And then my mom actually saw him run down the hall and like grab a uh, radiation therapist or my oncologist and kind of gave him an earful and just said, leave this kid alone. I'm just, I'm, I'm treating this kid. He's not, you're not going to microwave his brain when he's about to start algebra one. Um, and I, I've, I haven't read studies. I didn't know if radiation would actually affect my math skills, but um, he was he was really sure that it would, and he just wanted me to stick to uh, the surgical approach. And and um, 18 years later, I haven't had a recurrence, so I've I dodged a huge bullet. Long story short, I mean that that that's so interesting in the sense that he went to bat for you based on your age and your quality of mm-hmm. life and where you were at the time as not an 85 year old man. But at the same time, you know, my parents would have been like, hey, this guy was wrong the first time and it came back. How how did that go in terms of, you know, you were not a minor, clearly, but how did that really go in terms of, you know what, I'm going to agree with this guy and do nothing? Yeah, you know, it was really tough, but um, I guess you kind of had to have to know my neurosurgeon personally to kind of understand like the trust that my family had in him. I mean, his reputation, first of all, was just like insanely amazing. And second of all, uh, he just had such an air of confidence. Even when he walked in the room, people just felt immediately better. So he was kind of a rock star in my family's eyes. And we gave him the keys to my treatment plan 100%. And, and looking back and knowing what I know now, I've seen a lot of crazy things happen in the oncology arena. I have a lot of friends that have gone through this and we're not as lucky as me and family members and um and knowing that now uh if i would have been my dad i would have been like are you crazy man i'm gonna get a second third fourth opinion yeah, i want this exactly. done i want that done i want to talk to this guy i want to go to sloan kettering i want to go to md anderson i want to go to mayo <laughs> like you know what i'm saying um and so but my family was just like yeah dr nagib is a rock star he knows what he's doing let's just you know go with his flow so and it worked out. It worked out, and and um, and I'm really, really thankful for it to this day. Yeah. Hi. Um. My name is Melinda. I'm. Uh. I was a survivor spotlight on the show tonight, and I was wondering, was your only course of treatment surgery? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Because that was um the same experience that I had too. I I had a completely different cancer, but um. Yeah. So did you ever run into any issues of people being like? You know, like, how come you're not having chemo? You know, why do you still have hair? Did you ever run into any issues like that? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and like, just the other day, I, I, or uh, earlier this year, um, I, was, I was hanging out with my dad, and, and uh, you know, we were enjoying an adult beverage together. And then these two guys sitting right next to us started chatting with us, and one of them happened to be a pediatric neurologist. 
And I just said, oh, by the way, I had a, uh, when I was in my teenage years, I had an astrocytoma. And, um, and he was like, and you're standing here right now today? And I was like, yeah, what are you talking about? And he goes, man, if, uh, you know, if, 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 he, he couldn't believe, I mean, he, he honestly was just like, I can't, he couldn't, like, he wanted to go back and review all of his medical journals because he said, like, that is an amazing case, the fact that you were diagnosed with an astrocytoma. And, I, and I've later, when, the older I've gotten and the more I've learned about oncology, I've looked up some of the numbers and uh, I am extremely, it is a very aggressive form of brain cancer. And, um, and I, you know, I think, unfortunate, fortunately, I had a very low grade and the doctor, the neurosurgeon, I had a hunch on that. But um, yeah, I, I didn't really receive a lot of, you know, you don't look like the typical cancer patient um, uh, or any kind of treatment like that. But I think maybe um, in my own mind, I may have felt self-conscious that I didn't have to go through all the, all the things that some of my um, people like uh, some, a lot of the kids that were on the eighth floor in my hospital when I was recovering, you know, I, I spent probably two weeks, you know, laying on my back horizontal, staring at the ceiling in my hospital and, and all the other kids that were in the hospital with me, um, you know, were on chemo drips and going down to the radiation and, and, uh, you know, looked very, very, very sick and peaked. Whereas I was just kind of, you know, I was growing my hair back from the surgery site. I was eating up, eventually got upright, started eating again. You know, I had friends in my room who were listening to music, having a good time. I even, you know, would take my wheelchair down to McDonald's with the buddies. And so it, even in, from that moment, I actually kind of felt guilt that I was kind of getting an easy way through this horrid experience because a lot of people have to, I mean, you know, I couldn't imagine even being on chemotherapy for one day. It's it's just, you know, it's devastating. It's poison. And, and so I, I feel lucky, but at the same time, a, a tiny, tiny bit of guilt in that regard. It's a great question. Yeah. That, did you feel that way, Melinda? Yeah, I've... I've felt that way too, just from talking to other um, cancer survivors. Um, just the fact that I didn't go through chemo or radiation, it somehow um, there have been people who have somehow, you know, in their words and actions, somehow implied that I'm I'm less of a survivor because I didn't have to um, go through those particular experiences. So it's just it's weird. It's it's kind of like. Um, how in this tube can a cancer manifesto, you know, we always talk about, you know, you know, uh, it's not a contest about body. Parts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a contest. You, you know, um, we all had different courses of treatments just because of the, you know, the varying degrees of the disease that we had. And it's just, you know, we're all in this together, but I had people who were like, who saw me like a month or so after treatment and I still had, you know, hair, hair halfway <laughs> down my back yeah. and, um, like stuff like that and people were like i thought you were sick and that's when i'd be like yeah. oh and like i'd pull up my shirt and be like oh these drains that i still have in yeah. from surgery yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the yeah. whole butt you don't yeah, look i sick. totally feel that i'm yeah. actually this is really great that uh <clears throat> that our show or that our appearances coincided because uh yeah i was i was actually kind of worried that that was going to come up and that 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 bat was going to like hang up on me and he was going to be like oh you wuss <laughs> two craniotomies that's nothing no but honestly <laughs> and i'm i'm in between that too because i did have like major surgery i did have insane radiation therapy but i didn't have chemotherapy i declined chemotherapy because at oh. the time in 1996 it was ineffective for the cancer that i had but they didn't tell me that i had to find that out on my own hmm. Because wow. my uncle is a geneticist, and he's the one that said, this is not going to help you. 
And I didn't know what a blood-brain barrier was back then, but apparently it was the thing that chemo didn't penetrate to make any difference in your brain. So I have gotten shit sometimes, too. Like, what do you mean you didn't have chemotherapy? Like, I felt a level of guilt. Oh, I only had a massive eight-hour craniotomy that nearly killed me and three months of radiation that also nearly killed me, the side effects of which I still deal with 20 years later, and not chemotherapy. It, it is that stigma. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, you didn't suffer enough for me to care and have sympathy for you. Yeah. I didn't actually expect that this conversation would go this direction, but I think this is fantastic because it is something that I've all, I think about all the time. And uh, it's, I'm, I'm happy that you guys can understand that point of view a little bit. That's really cool. I was not expecting that. So, so, now, so you're like a really smart science guy um, and your brain is still in your head. So and you got into you got into biotech and and it's a I mean I'm not my wheelhouse in a sense but I am uh, consistently fascinated by the rapid advancement of technology and targeted therapies and I was at this conference with Bill Clinton a couple of weeks ago and he said I, I quoted this on Twitter like the the most significant advance we've seen in 50 years of medicine is the shift from body part to genome where, and and I was hoping you could give us the third grade version of that based on the work that you do uh, with your company and how that applies to the way you bring your story and progress to the people that you meet. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. I'm super happy to do that. Um, I think the best way to do it would probably be start farther down the timeline um, and, you know, when the physicians maybe in the early 1900s started knowing or started realizing that, you know, uh, uh, every once in a while uh, with, with human beings that cells can start just growing, 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 growing and eventually kill you. And so they, they concocted uh, poisons to slow those things down and they just treated cancer. They didn't care if it was in the brain or if it was in the breast or the lung or the pancreas. If if they could tell that you had symptoms of something of cells that were growing when they shouldn't have been, they gave you some, uh, some sort of poison that was kind of a derivative of mustard gas. Uh, and it was pretty much the same cocktail for everybody. Um, and then you move up 50 years from that and they started breaking and, and I'm generalizing the timeline, but this is, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, pretty, pretty close. And about 50 years ago, they uh, started treating cancers by indication. So if someone had breast cancer uh, lung cancer, gastric cancer, colon cancer, they started to realize that some of the different um, uh, drug agents out there were more effective in different parts of the body. And so then you move up to maybe 25 years ago and they started breaking cancers down by class. So it's like adenocarcinoma, squamous cell, uh, neuroendocrine, for instance, and they realized that uh, some you know, different drugs with different mechanisms worked better in those subclasses of cancer. And now today, or about you know five years ago, or the last ten years, um, we we have like sub subclasses of cancer. So we have like her uh, her two positive gastric cancer. You have triple negative breast cancer. You have KRAS mutated colon cancer. Um, and so and and then those uh, you know subsets of cancer have a very very specific 
a cocktail of a combination of chemotherapies and small molecule targeted therapies that just target one protein that's kind of being a menace in the tumor. And um, so over the last 100 years, I'm sure you've seen the, the, the numbers and the, the graphs, the survival rates have, incre have increased immensely, um, not by finding a magic bullet uh, drug that fixes all cancers, but um, just by getting better at classifying how the, you know, what is you know, driving these cancers to grow um, out of control and, um, and, and which proteins you can target with these drugs um, that can you know, slow down the cancer and, and uh, be more effective at um, shutting down these cells that are you know, being jerks. And then also at the same time, it's being less um, toxic to the patient. And so what my company does and what the companies in my space do is that we, we just take analyzing tumors to the next level. So a lot of hospitals, a lot of academic institutions um, have their own little pathology labs where they kind of, you know, they can determine just by staining tissue whether or not, you know, uh, they can determine if it's squamous cell or neuroendocrine. But that's just about as far as they go. Um, and then there's a lot of private companies that where these hospitals and physicians will outsource extra diagnostics where they say, okay, I want you to look at 343 genes that could potentially be saying, grow, 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 grow. And I want you guys over here to look at, I don't know, 27 oncoproteins that can, you know, malfunction and then end up saying, grow, 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 grow. And if we know, know those factors, we can make a perfect cocktail of uh, chemos and targeted therapies um, that will slow down the cancer and also be less toxic to the patient. So that's kind of the, um, I guess, bird's eye view of personalized medicine um, and molecular diagnostics in a nutshell. Right. And, and of course, the challenge here is then now more multifaceted where it's, oh, you have breast cancer, here are the drugs for breast cancer. You have to then get like sequenced and have your genome mapped to the extent that and then get that result matched with the medicine that treats that genomic thing in your body, not the breast cancer itself. And companies right. are in the business of finding the patients to match the genetic drugs and then finding genetic drugs to match the patients, regardless of where the cancer is in their body. It's a whole new industry. Yep. Yep. Exactly. It's brand new. And, um, I, I, I joined my company five and a half years ago. There's like maybe 10 people here and, uh, and we've grown huge. And, um, and, and even the, the space around us, uh, all the other companies that, that uh, analyze tumors and, uh, you know, even blood-based cancers um, are just, you know, they're growing, their technology is fascinating. Like I think it, it was 10 years ago, Francis Collins, who's the head of the NIH, mapped the first human genome. It cost him $100 million and took him like seven years to do it. And, um, and today you can sequence an entire genome. Every base pair in your genome, Matt, you can sequence in half a day for $4,400. That's exponential technology growth. Um, and, uh, and it's only going to get better. It's only going to get cheaper. It's going to get faster. The amount of tissue, the amount of biopsy tissue you need is going to be smaller. And, um, and I, I truly think we're about to, to, we're on the precipice of a golden age of cancer treatment. Uh, just, you know, go, I go to these, I'm so lucky I get to go to these conferences and, and dinners with oncologists and nurses and nurse practitioners and, um, you know, uh, patient advocates 
and social workers all over the country. I get to meet these people and, um, and everyone in their own arena is doing beautiful things. Even you, Matt, what you guys are doing is, I think, you know, just as important to personalize medicine and the renaissance of, of cancer treatment that's about to happen. Uh, I mean, we all play an awesome role in this, and, um, and, and it's, you know, it's, I'd way rather, you know, get diagnosed with a cancer today than in 1995 when you and I both were diagnosed. That's for damn sure. So uh, we got five minutes left. I want to ask a question. We have five of, minutes left. Yeah, it's been thirty minutes. Oh my min- god! I was worried about like how long this interview was going to be all day. I was like thirty minutes. I was like, can I even talk for thirty minutes? Do I have anything to? No, <laughs> Do no. I even know how to talk for thirty minutes. They go only five minutes left. Oh they my go god, very fast. They, it happens very quickly. So we have three <laughs> people here on the air that were diagnosed with cancers that were undetectable and unpreventable, right? So, I guess to both of you, then I'm always annoyed internally and sometimes externally about this whole idea of the word cure and the mm-hmm. word prevention. Um, and, and I realize that there are some cancers that are potentially preventable based on risk reduction, but there's nothing guaranteeing that. But when you're born with a cancer like I was, or whether you develop a cancer at 27 years old in, in your uterus or just at 15, you have a brain tumor, like, how do you explain that in terms of genetics and the word cure and the word prevent? We throw these words around all the time, curing cancer, curing cancer. Let's find a cure one day. Um, so, Joe, you work in the industry. You're a scientist. But, and, and, you know, Mel, you, you've, you know, you as just a consumer, you know, what's your take? And then I want to hear what a science guy's take is. What's my take on if the word prevention and cure and all that there are there in terms of cure, it's like, yes, you can be, you know, quote unquote, cured of a disease and that you and that your body no longer has any evidence of that disease. But there are still all those side effects left over from whatever cured you. And then in terms of um, prevention, there it. Like, is there one day going to be a pill that women can take so that they don't get uterine cancer or ovarian cancer or cervical cancer, like that kind of thing? Because there are things, you know, you know, like, yes, you can, you know, not smoke and, um, you know, that will reduce your likelihood of getting lung cancer. But there are still people who don't smoke who get lung cancer. Yep. And it's like, how do we how do we, you know, you know. Uh, uh, where do we go from here? What what can we do in terms of prevention? Like there are all these studies, you know, like if you drink orange juice, that helps reduce your risk of getting cancer because there was some random study done by someone who figured this out. And it's like all these little things that just add up. Right. But, you know, what's going to be enough? Exactly. Joe? Well, it's a tough, tough question, but uh, I think a good reference point is that in the early 2000s, there was a company that actually existed right across the street from my company that uh, had a drug, uh, two drugs, I think endostatin and angiostatin, and you know they were on, written up in the New York Times. They were on the cover of Time Magazine. Their CEO was kind of a celebrity for a while, and they were claiming that they had the magic bullet for all cancer. I'm, I'm not sure blood blood-based cancers, but like all solid tumor cancers, so like lung, breast, gastric cancer. They were like, yeah, we figured out a way how to shut off the blood supply to tumors and ev- cancer is going to be gone in, in, you know, not in the not too distant future. And so, you know, stocks 
blew up. These guys were going to be the next big thing. People were really, really excited, and it turns out the shit didn't work. Oh, God, I just swore. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Abdo. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And, um, and, so I, and I get that asked, asked that all the time. Um, so when, you know, when's the cure going to happen? When's the cure? You know, are, they, are we close to a cure yet? And, you know, I, I've, I, all I do is, is read uh, journal articles about uh, the current state of, of cancer and um, medical oncology and molecular diagnostics. And all I can tell, is, tell you is that we're just getting much, much better at figuring out what wags cancer, and we're finding out really cool and smart ways to trick cancer, and we also are involving the immune system. Uh, with some immunotherapy drugs that have just come to the market, have just been approved by the FDA. Um, and so I think, in all, uh, I don't know if we're going to ever be able to find that magic bullet, that one pill that everyone can take that will just turn off cancer. But I think we're going to get really, really, really good at classifying cancer and then treating cancer. That's a good answer. I'm satisfied with that answer yeah. from a science guy. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I think you even brought it up earlier um, about how some people think that uh, that you know there's like a worldwide conspiracy to hide the recipe that has already been discovered for curing cancer. Right. Right. And I and I, do, I see it on Facebook like maybe once a week, and I and I have to be you know I I don't want anyone to think I'm mean or a bully or anything like that, so I just have to bite my social media tongue and I never say anything to these people, but. Um, I, you know, I see an article all the time, like, you know, you know it's, a, it's, a, it's a worldwide conspiracy for the pharma groups to make tons of money by just, you know, pumping their, you know, uh, countrymen with, uh, you know, toxic drugs. And that's just not the case. It's just not the case at all. And, right. And, uh, and, you know, I, I can't tell you how many oncologists that I've talked to, I've had dinner with, have had coffee with where, you know, they've had just, you know, have lost a patient and, and they feel it. You, they, they cry. Uh, they think about it, you know, all the time. And um, and our, I'm very close with our chief medical officer here at my company. And um, he, I mean, he just lives for his patients. He lives for his patients. And uh, I know uh, even the scientists that are at pharma groups, even the academic researchers that are at, all over this country, all over the world, all they do that when they wake up in the morning is they want to go in and make some sort of modest effort to help people that have cancer and maybe one day find that magic bullet and find that cure. So, um, uh, so I, I just, maybe this is a good platform for me to just say, it's just not the case. There is right. no, there is no worldwide conspiracy. No. I, and we, we agree with that. I just, I, I just wanted to wrap the show with, with this, uh, you know, bunker busting nonsense, <laughs> killing ridiculousness, the cannabis oil people and, and all the, and all their fabulousness on social media. Thank you people for being those people. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Joe, this has been wonderful. We want to have you back. Uh, I, I also, you know, we, we had a really good conversation in Chicago about what you guys are doing, and I think there's a lot we can we can work together on. But uh, two-time uh, astrocytoma young adult survivor Joe Abdo, uh, what's your title on Uncleplex? Uh, I was actually hired here as a junior scientist, but I work over uh, in de business development efforts, so I get to talk to cool guys like you. So I'm a product manager now. Good. Uh, which is you know, a lot of fun. And I'm actually going to Peoria, Illinois, to uh, give a talk to about uh, two dozen nurses tomorrow. So just you know, explain to them about molecular diagnostics. And, and even like to the people listening to the show right now, 
Um, there are a lot of great companies out there um, that you know have you know amazing scientific platforms at analyzing tumors. And so when you you know talk to your doctor again, I would just highly suggest you know ask about molecular diagnostics if they use it, if they're into it, if they know anything about it. Because the more you know about your t- uh, your your tumor's biology, um, the better everyone is. Joe, thanks so much. Good luck uh, with your beautiful children and your wife, and uh, keep in touch. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Joe Abdo, everyone. (laughs) You know, before we wrap, he's very cool, super Mm. cool guy. Um, Before we wrap, uh, I I, I forget, one of you pointed this out to me. So Jess Mack, Jess McKenzie, who Mm -hmm. has been on the show before, one of our interns, um, requested her medical records. From Sloan Kettering. Oh, I saw her her, so, her CD box set. Like, so like a ten got a box set. Yeah. A ten stack of four gigabyte four four gigabyte DVDs landed on her, her plate. And I think that speaks to what he talked about. You know, it may take um, you know, forty four hundred bucks and half a day to get sequenced, but that's like a terabyte of information. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a thousand DVDs, you know, like it's ridiculous. So what Jess got, if you want, if you really want your data, what do you do with a terabyte hard drive? Right. So that I, I'm curious to see what would actually is on those, uh, those DVDs. Did she get sequenced? Is her DNA in there? Or is it really just the treatments that she's had, the doctors that she's seen? And I just found it fascinating because this, this whole argument over, I want my data, I want to know my data. They used to not release your data. We did a whole show about like they never got the the data. Yeah, from, with the, I still don't have my slides. Right, they won't give you the slides. Um, I to like I thought it was ridiculous that I had to um when I had my first meeting with my oncologist, I had to bring my uh, pathology slides from when I had um the DNC procedure done, and I had to pay the lab for my that, slides that came from your body. Yes, y- yes, for the cells that came from my body, I had to pay the pathology lab for them. Well, we had Regina Holiday on the show recently, and she, her whole story was that her husband passed away, and they would not give her his data. Yeah, she had to like sue them for his data. Anyway, I, I just I, I've just found it funny that Jess asked for her data and like a stack of Columbia they House CDs <laughs> showed up, landed on her desk. Yeah, it's it, awesome. It's great that it's protected from other people. Not so great when it's quote unquote protected from right, you. Right, exactly. Well, this is a good show. Thank you for joining us in studio. I had fun. Thank you for having me. All right. And with that, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, the 355th episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests once again, Melinda Hood and Joe Abdo. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. 
Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of myself, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, Sean Shapiro, and Noel Wimmer, thank you for listening. And as always, we'll see you right here on the next broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Bye, folks.